Special thanks to Chris Bentley, Samuel Privé, and Matt Parchinski for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is Ed. And this is Southpaw. A note about this episode. This was recorded prior to the announcement of Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje and Henry Cejudo versus Dominic Cruz, which only reinforces some of our observations. Today on Southpaw, we have MMA and wrestling writer and analyst, Ed Gallo. Hi, Ed. Hello. Tell us about yourself and the publications you write for. Uh, so I'm, I'm 25 is a thing about me. I live in Philly. Uh, I, uh, I went to college, all that. I, I got a, a bachelor's degree. Then I got a master's degree. Oh, you're a master also. Yeah. Master Ed Gallo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have a master's in uh, counseling psychology. Uh, I was planning on, you know, being a therapist, something like that. And, uh, my internship path, uh, took me into higher education, like, uh, advising and, and college counseling. Uh, things like that. So that's where I ended up working. So I'm I'm a uh, an academic advisor more or less now. Uh, but yeah, basically, when I started grad school, I also started uh, writing about MMA. So I started with MMA Sucker, which is like a small independent website. Um, and yeah, from there, I branched into uh, Bloody Elbow. And uh, maybe six months ago, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, who was a Polgas Boxeo on Twitter, uh, he started the fight site and brought me on. And I think just because I had that experience with editing and just I'd been around it a couple of years at this point, I kind of fell into a leadership role. And uh, just uh, in terms of like having the time to take responsibility and things like that, uh, it looked good for me to to step up. So yeah, I'm, I'm currently the owner of the site. Oh, uh, so you could say I, I own uh, the fight site. <laughs> so if I have problems with the fight site, I don't like it. I'm angry with it. I just take it up with you. Yeah, that's uh, that's what what people do whenever uh, our our writers and my friends make inflammatory comments. They get DMs like, "Hey, Ed, you're great, but I hate so and so." It's all the time like that. You're very upfront about it because I know uh, the creator and I think main editor of Bloody Elbow. Like, I think if you go to his Facebook or his Twitter, you don't even know he's related to Bloody Elbow at all. I think because he doesn't want people to bother him about it. Yeah, that makes sense. When you're a huge publication like that, putting out you know, dozens of articles per day. There's just so many things you could be getting blowback for. So I, I get it. But the fight site, we're emerging. So we got to all put ourselves out there. So you mentioned your age and you seem like part of a crop of young 
20-year-old zillennial writers breaking into MMA media right now. So what is the process of breaking into MMA media like? Because I know you started out at MMA Sucka. So is that just like an easy one for everybody to get into, like an independent site like that? Yeah, basically, if you go to Google and type in, uh, in quotes, write for us, and then add another item uh, for MMA, uh, several things will pop up, a few different websites. The only website that I, because this is, this is the process that I followed, um, the only website that you like would have heard of when I did that was uh, MMA Junkie. They actually pop up when you do that. Um, so yeah, basically just, I got, I got a list of maybe 10 sites that had a, a write for us page or some sort of link about applying, um, and just sent out as many as I could. And I definitely made the rookie mistake of, uh, forgetting to change the, who I was sending it to like in the body of the email to a couple of people. I think MMA junkie was one of the ones where I talked about another site, like in the body of the email, uh, but they weren't going to take on some no experience, but pretty much I just had a sample prepared. I just sent the sample out to as many sites as I could. And uh, I think you'll find with a lot of smaller sites like that, they're willing to accept either someone with a little bit of experience or someone with no experience as long as the sample holds up. Um, I ended up being like a managing editor over at MMA Sucka, and I was I was a big part of the uh, the onboarding process and the hiring process. Not really hiring, but bringing people on and uh, recruitment. Yeah, and my standards weren't that high because it's seen as kind of a developmental gig. Yeah. Uh, definitely open to taking people on who aren't really polished yet and, and guiding them towards being better just because those small sites, um, they typically don't pay. And if they do pay, it's very little. So they're taking, they're, they're basically, you're doing them a favor by coming on. So uh, what they give to you is is the experience to, to grow. But yeah, there's, there's like three or four sites that you could uh, do something like that with. Um, I don't know if you remember, maybe two years ago, one of the big ones was, uh, shoot, MMA Today, I believe. And uh, they, they basically were doing the same thing MMA Saka was, was just giving anybody a chance, and they just had tons of writers. And um, I believe that that website is no longer in existence, but they're, they're popping up all the time. So it's actually really easy to get your start in MMA writing. All you really need is, is a sample. And what was your sample about? Oh, it was terrible. Uh, my, my sample was a breakdown of... Uh, the UFC 219 main card, uh, like preview, a preview breakdown, uh, basically just like, and here, here's my, my thing is, uh, gifts were, were a huge part of it. I, I view gifts as like a marketing ploy. Um, so many people don't like to read articles, but everyone likes to look at gifts. So even <laughs> if you have this big breakdown, as long as there's a few gifts in every section that they'll keep them happy scrolling through it. Um, so yeah, basically just my, my very amateur analysis at the time, plus, plus some gifts of each fight. And if I went back and read it now, uh, I, I remember some of the things I said and, and how wrong it was and how bad my analysis was, but <laughs> I think it was fairly decently written and, uh, not everyone has an eye for, for bad takes. So I'm not <laughs> sure if the editors who, uh, looked at my submission knew that it was bad, um, but yeah, just I, I had the sample. I sent it out to a bunch of people, and I initially actually got accepted uh, by a couple sites, and and did a couple of them at once, and then saw how their processes were, you know, how the sites ran, and and settled into MMA Sucker because that seemed like the one with the most structure um, and the most open communication. So you contacted a lot of MMA websites. With the bigger ones, would they send you a rejection letter saying, "Hey, we're not interested. You need more experience," or would it be just crickets? 
Uh, MMA Junkie was saying, hey, we're not really looking for anyone right now uh, and, you know, wouldn't probably wouldn't be interested in bringing on anyone new. Also, you forgot to change the name of who you're <laughs> writing the email to. So they're the only big site that responded to me. I didn't like try to contact another big site again until the Bloody Elbow uh, Overture, which went well. So uh, I really only have one that one experience to speak to. So I think that's the real jump, right, is from writing for something like that to Bloody Elbow. So how many articles did you have to write before you got on to Bloody Elbow? Uh, over 100. Over 100 <laughs> in uh, the span of, let's see, I started in January 2018 with MMA Saka, and I think I was with Bloody Elbow by like spring 2019. So in a little more than a year, I wrote over 100 articles, at least one a week, often more than one a week. And that's kind of what it took to get into the space that quickly. So to get into the glamorous world of MMA writing, <laughs> this is the kind of grind you have to do mostly for free, right? Almost entirely for free. Uh, <laughs> what you'll find at most sites uh, like that are they're running uh, Google AdSense. So all revenue is based on, on viewership. So it's all about views. Um, and that's not to say that they don't let you write things that aren't as lucrative in terms of views because uh, there's they, they strike a balance uh so you'll have like results posts basically just uploading uh, up you know updating live results posts uh which can be really helpful when it's an event that isn't being covered by the mainstream basically i was picking up the scraps i, I know uh, mma soccer does really well with uh like uh submission grappling events like polaris and uh, metamoris and, and those types of things uh, those usually get good viewership because no one else is putting out the like the results articles like you would for an MMA event. Um, and also, you know, every once in a while you get a scoop, you get some news and that's always good for views. But yeah, the analysis stuff is is not great for viewership. So typically you're not getting paid a lot with that. Uh, and if you are, it's because you worked really hard on the uh, search engine optimization. Uh, basically specs, there's, there's a few things you can do that'll make your content more visible. So you have to work really hard on that. And then you almost always have to put it on the MMA subreddit. If you don't get it there, no one's looking at it most likely. Um, I've had, you know, one-off successes with like, you know, the athlete in question shared it on Facebook and, you know, their friends and family shared it out and, and it got some traction that way. But typically if it's not on the MMA subreddit and if it doesn't take off on there, no one's going to look at it and you're not going to make any money. And just to contextualize this, I was doing enough and, and promoting often enough where I was definitely the most viewed author for the site, you know, several quarters in a row. Uh, and that's kind of how the, the views are broken down by quarter. And uh, yeah, I, I was in the tens of thousands of views and that was netting me like uh, 50 bucks for three months. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the glamorous world of MMA writing yeah. when you're starting. And I'm sure it doesn't get that much more glamorous when you're established. It gets a little more reliable. You don't have to completely bust your hump just and like gamble to see if you're going to make anything. Like at least you know you're getting something for your work. And other sites have different structures um, where you can get a little bit guaranteed for the, the pieces. But yeah, it was hectic. It was really stressful every week wondering whether or not anyone's going to view my work and like having to be really unapologetically, uh, you know, out there with the marketing and the promotion. And it's just, it didn't feel great to have to do, but that's, that's kind of how it is in the beginning. Yeah. Especially when you share your own work on Reddit. 
people sometimes have a problem with that. You have to uh, maintain a ratio. So <laughs> across Reddit, it's uh, it's 10 to 1 is the ratio. So on most subreddits, every one thing you post in that sub of self-promotion, you need to balance it out with 10 posts of something else, which is hard. So that's like a job in itself. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's a very time consuming uh, and not all subs will accept your posts. So it, it takes it could take weeks. Um, the MMA subreddit is a little more loose with that. It's theirs is a 10 to three rule, which is really like three to one. Um, but even then, it's it's tough to get your posts approved. Uh, and like it can go into auto moderation. It can take a couple hours before it shows up, which throws off the timeline. So it's all a huge you know, revolving cycle of, of promotion and creation. And it's, it's a lot, it's more work than most people think it is. I think. Yeah. It sounds kind of like, like a uh, YouTube hell or something trying to work the algorithm. Oh, it's yeah. <laughs> so there seems like there's a generational shift that's happened and continuing to happen where the previous generation of MMA media were all about chasing after interviews from fighters or promoters or anyone related to combat sports. But now it feels like, with the newer writers like yourself, the emphasis is less about characters and the narrative and more about analyzing and breaking down the fight. Mm -hmm. So what do you think drew you to analysis rather than trying to be the new Ariel Hawani? Well, the thing that drew me specifically to analysis was probably um, Jack Slack. I would say I, I credit most of it for Jack Slack. And that's like I said, I was one of those people. I, I, I think I have ADD. It's not diagnosed or anything, but I show all the symptoms. Uh, so I have a hard time like sitting down and reading a full article. Basically, the articles I read are, are my friends or the things I have to edit. Being an editor, yeah, I read everything, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was always been tough for me to like sit down and read an article. But I always noticed that Jack Slack had like screenshots and, and GIFs that illustrated his points. I always found myself like reading the things around the gifts and acquainting myself with that. And at the time, he was the only person I knew who was doing any sort of analysis. I didn't even know it was like a genre. I thought it was just like, oh, he's the guy. This is the one guy that knows like what's going to happen in the fights. And it was it was seemed so mystical to me. And by default, because he was the only one, he was the best one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I didn't know about guys like Connor Rebush and uh, like Phil McKenzie and those guys at the time. Uh but, you know, I started watching MMA in about 2010, and I probably found his work pretty shortly after. Um, but it still took, let's call it eight years before I even started thinking about things analytically. Um, and I, I can't say what happened in that time period. I think it's just once I started writing about it, uh, I started to write about fighters. And when you write about fighters, you write about their fights, because I, I was like... I was always focused on the athletes and, and their fighting, but I just didn't understand it as well as I thought I did. And that was becoming apparent as I was writing these articles about these fighters before their fights. Then they were losing and they were losing a lot. And I was like, oh, I'm cursing them. <laughs> but also I like didn't see it coming at all the way they lost. I'm like, what is going on here? So I started paying more attention, being more careful <laughs> with uh, what, I, like, what I would say and how I would evaluate and praise things. So basically it was like a self-correcting uh, development where I just didn't want to look as stupid in my articles <laughs> and it just kept you know coming closer and closer to analysis but that doesn't stop the heavy hands boys they're, they're almost always wrong yeah. right <laughs> yeah but it's always like they never look that dumb no no after their prediction yeah they always touch on a few things and they have fun with that too exactly 
but I wasn't I wasn't really there. I was like missing something huge that we're like completely, you know, evaluating something wrong. Uh, so I, just to, to be <laughs> less embarrassed, <laughs> I started studying up and basically that has meant taking more time. Uh, I was like I was making the gifts for the fights, which it, in a way is is studying because uh, you have to like take, you know, your recording of, of all these significant moments. Um, but beyond the significant moments, maybe you start to see something before that, that, you know, that keyed you in on, oh, this is why he was successful landing this shot or setting up this takedown. Oh, he was doing that before. That actually makes sense. Um, and, to, you know, to be honest, what I used to do was uh, Fight Pass used to have those little markers on the bottom where there'd be like a lightning bolt when something significant would happen. I would just skip around and be like, okay, when does stuff happen? Because it was all about entertainment for me. I just wanted uh, people to think this guy was cool and, and fun to watch, which I think is where most fans are at. They just want to see someone who uh, creates action. Um, but yeah, I think just uh, it, ha- it happened completely organically, my, my shift to analysis. But I think subconsciously it was always there just because of how I always enjoyed uh, those analytical articles back in the day. And I think just once I started to break into that sphere, uh, I started to you know read and connect more with other people doing it. Um, I can say that Ryan Wagner definitely uh, is a huge influence because we were writing together at MMA Sucka, and um, I I like didn't know because he he published pretty infrequently, so I didn't see his work that often, uh, so I wasn't really aware of it. And then when I became an editor, uh, I, when I did his first article, I was like, oh my god, like this is incredible! And to this day, he's probably still the best. MMA analyst or combat sports analyst, period. Um, but I was completely blown away because I'd never seen something like that before. It was about uh, Michael Perez. Uh, he was a, a Cuban uh, Olympian uh, freestyle wrestler, and now he's an MMA fighter at uh, Bantamweight or Flyweight, I believe. But yeah, it was just amazing. And then basically from that point on, I was like, okay, I can I can get closer to this. I can just basically study what other people are doing and, and find my own voice analytically, but I think I can do this. Um, and you know, I those however many articles I wrote before I started doing analysis, I had to write that many more once I decided I was going to do it before they became any good. Um, I would say I'm not proud of any of my work that happened before like 2019. I, I would say it's only been a, a year and change of, of work that I would actually show anyone. You mentioned something that I wanted to highlight, which is fight pass. Yes. Theoretically, right? Let's not go into how things are paid for, but theoretically, if you have Fight Pass, you're getting the pay-per-views and you're trying to get your break in MMA media, it might actually be an endeavor where you're losing money than making money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so easy to be losing money because even if you're like watching the rest of it at a friend's house or at a bar and only ordering occasional pay-per-views and then paying the monthly thing for Fight Pass and now some of the fights are locked on ESPN+, Plus, yeah, it's easy to be making zero money doing this. Oh yeah, most people are are losing money. I would say uh, more more often than not, you're losing money because you're yeah you're paying for Fight Pass, you're paying for ESPN Plus. Uh, depending on well, in in the past, um, people who also paid for VPN uh, services because events would be blacked out for a certain amount of time after they aired um, on Fight Pass. You could use a VPN to, if you like pretending to view it in another country. It'll unlock for you. So people paying for that on top of it. Wait, so fight pass, some of the fights were locked based on your country? Yeah. So <laughs> like if the if the fight in the US was on pay-per-view, 
But if you're like English and it was on BT Sport and it was free on TV, you should be able to view it right away on Fight Pass if you're English because it was free to view right away originally. So they're not they don't have any incentive to lock it. Um, but yeah, if you're American, they're like, oh, this is a pay-per-view card. We're not going to just put it back on for free the day after because then why would anyone buy the pay-per-view? So the UFC machine is even making money off of MMA media. Yeah, in a way. <laughs> Do you think also part of that shift into analysis is also just a shift in society? Because you said it kind of happens subconsciously, right? Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is like you're coming up fully entrenched in the gig economy. It's not like the gig economy is merging. That's the economy that you graduated into, right? Mm -hmm. So multitasking and doing multiple things on top of a day job is kind of normal. Sure. So instead of spending three days chasing down a four-minute interview, maybe it makes more sense and it's more practical to watch fights on your computer and then write about them. Yeah, and I definitely tried my hand at the at the interview game too. So I, I had some experience with it. Um, How was that? It was it was all right. I did it initially because I wanted to supplement these articles that I was writing because they weren't really analysis. They're more like profiles that included like talking about the fights themselves. And I went to interview the fighters about their fighting, um, which a huge, huge rabbit hole. But that's what led me into writing a book. Actually, um, I interviewed Joey Davis uh, in Bellator and uh, yeah, I wrote that article and he had a uh, publicist. And the publicist is how I got in touch with him. Uh, and then I sent the article to the publicist afterward. And he was like, oh, do you want to write a book? We're trying to write this book about Joey. Uh, because Joey is a four-time undefeated uh, national champion in Division Two in college wrestling, which is he's the only one to ever do that. He's you know a historical figure um, that hasn't really gotten his shine. So I ended up doing that. Um, so I, I did plenty of interviews in that space. So personally, I was just sick of doing interviews by the end of it because i did so many why were you sick of them because i had it was like months and months and months of of getting these interviews and uh i'm not like i'm I'm chatty but i don't i'm not very outgoing i don't like to talk to strangers that often or like i feel like i'm bothering someone um which is kind of a, a generational trait i think like you, you don't want to uh feel like you're taking up anyone's time um and, and fighters are, you know, they got enough on their plate as it is. And, and usually I'm calling them during fight week. Yeah. Because that's, you know, when you're circulating these pieces. And it's not like you have a long time to prep for things because you're trying to turn over content week by week. So you're usually calling them like during their weight cut, during fight prep. And they're so busy. And, you know, sometimes you get some really good stuff out of them. Uh, but most of the time, I'm like, I don't think it's worth the effort <laughs> for what I'm doing. Yeah. And plus, we talked about how the gig economy functions with in terms of how you get paid uh, from these websites and interviews, unless they say something really juicy that uh, you can get like a clickbaity title going um, then they don't really pay off. Um, you're not really going to get paid. And this, the media market for MMA, it's so crowded with people doing interviews. I mean, pretty much everyone that gets a staff position at any one of these bigger websites it's either about conducting interviews or aggregating interviews like from tweets or other videos or things like that. So that's that's what the existing actual economy for MMA is like the people that actually have paying jobs. Um, they're all, you know, access journalists. So it's it's so crowded at the top there. It's so hard to break into. Uh, so I think people were just basically problem solving and saying, OK, what else is there? What 
isn't there a stranglehold on already? And I think uh, because that's so access based, you know, it's very political to get into those positions and to get, you know, in touch with the fighters. Um, like if you want to, for example, I wanted to interview Brad Tavares and uh, his manager is Ali Abdelaziz. And he isn't like, if you don't have his DMs on access, like usually you try to get in touch with their manager. Well, I don't want to talk to Ali Abdelaziz, so it's going to be hard for me to get in touch with Brad Tavares. You know what I mean? So I think just in terms of like uh, freedom and accessibility and just, you know, something you could pot anyone could possibly get into i think analysis because all you really need is a brain in your head um and put the time in and you, and you can become an, an analyst and do some good work whereas for interviewing it's, it's a lot more dumb luck uh so i think people like myself just saw it as something that was more merit-based at least to just produce um and that that was definitely attractive about it so you have a day job mm-hmm. you're not making fat mma media money so how do you manage your schedule so you don't burn out with all the stuff you're working on? Uh, it's definitely a struggle week to week. Um, I'd like to say I have like the same time slots budgeted for my, my MMA work, but really it all just kind of blends together. Um, and I don't think anyone from my job is listening to this, but yeah, I definitely take time at work uh, to work on this stuff. I would say I, I put more time into my MMA writing career than I do in my actual job. <laughs> Um, because it, it requires that much time. I mean, any given week, I have to produce at least one article for Bloody Elbow. So for that article, I need at least a night or two dedicated solely to doing the background research and generating, like chopping up the clips for what I'm going to be doing because I always incorporate footage, have to, um, just for myself. And, you know, if I'm doing one of those longer breakdowns on a freestyle wrestler's career, I need another full day. Excuse me. I need another full day to uh, make the uh, the tables with all their, their medals at important events, which takes a long time. So we're talking about a minimum three days of work uh, for one article. And uh, nowadays, I, I'm trying to do more than one a week because usually I have something fight site uh, specific that I need to work on. Um, not to mention the time that I had to put into like setting up podcasts, recording podcasts, doing any editing. Uh, and then on top of that, I'm running the site. So I got to edit their articles and schedule and manage. And, uh, it, it, it adds up really quickly. Uh, so I end up not having a lot of free time outside <laughs> of doing that plus my job. And I, I try to find as much time as possible during my job to do MMA stuff just because it's, you're exhausted. You're exhausted when you get home because I, I work hard at my job too. So you're not avoiding burnout then? <laughs> no, I'm not avoiding burnout at all. And I actually, I, I've been like sat down already and by people in the industry who see me <laughs> putting all this stuff out and like, hey, you need to slow down. Like you're, you're putting out, you know, tens of thousands of words per month because my articles aren't short either. I mean, my shortest ones are about 1500 to 2000 words. Um, that's just naturally how they come out. I'm not trying to make them super long. So they're like, you need to find a way to make this more sustainable and long-term. But I'm kind of like a crazy obsessive person. So being obsessed with something does work well for me. Um, And if I'm ever feeling super overwhelmed, I just give a heads up to uh, to some of the people that I work with, like on on Twitter, online. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to be MIA for a bit. I just need to unplug from Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> it's just like because that's usually where I manage most of my my MMA life, and I'll just disappear. 
<laughs> so that's how I avoid burnout is that it's completely feel like it, it feels nice to symbolically uh, shrug off all of my responsibilities. <laughs> so it sounded like you got recruited for the fight site. So then how did it end up becoming your site? Uh, basically, Kyle always had this idea, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, this idea that he that he wanted because uh, we were already in this huge group chat on Twitter. And pretty much everyone in the group chat was an analyst of some sort, uh, some boxing, some MMA, some you know, other things. And, uh, you know, we'd been talking on that group chat for maybe two years before this happened. Um, and just one day he he opened the lid on it and said, oh, guys, I've been cooking this up for a long time. I think it's a good idea. I think we should all start a website together. Um, and, you know, because he was the leader, it was his idea. It was his site at first. He bought the domain, everything like that. That was pretty much the only expense at that point was the the purchase of the domain. Um, and, you know, I think pretty quickly, because we already had like 15 people on the roster immediately because the recruitment happened all at once. Um, I think he realized that it was going to be a lot of work. He has a full-time job. You know, he's got a, a life. He's very busy. Um, I think he saw that he shouldn't be taking on all that responsibility. So we were sharing it for a little bit. Um, and then I think he just figured, why not, why not pass it off? Um, just, you know, take some of the heat off himself, take some of the, the burden off of his shoulders. Um, so he's still, you know, in, in behavior and action co-leading this with me. I wouldn't consider myself a leader. I'm definitely at least sharing that responsibility, but I think just, uh, by, by having that financial tra- transfer, I paid for, I, uh, yeah, I covered the domain cost. Um, just so that moving forward, if like he ever didn't want to have to have the responsibility, he wouldn't have to, and it would be on me, um, which I'm cool with just cause, uh, to be honest with you, it's a lot easier to run a site and manage all, all of these articles, uh, when I genuinely care about everything that's being put out and these are all my friends and like, I believe in the content. It's a lot less draining than, uh, the cycle was at like MMA sucker, for example, where we're just trying to like, you know get stuff out every day, you know, whatever, like having a, a different site where we can take our time and focus on quality. Uh, that doesn't really hurt me too much, except certain days. Yeah, it feels like there's a ton to do, but it's it's fairly rewarding otherwise. So give it to the obsessive young guy. Yeah, yeah. I think he's, he picked that up. <laughs> so I asked Steffi Haynes and I've asked also several other MMA writers this question. Do you think seeing the daily struggles of MMA fighters and also working in the gig economy yourself has shaped your politics? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. Um, I can't say if it's a direct impact of this recent process for me, but I think the timeline is similar. Like coming into MMA and and you know being a sixteen year old at the time, uh, like a sixteen year old wrestler on top of that so like someone who, who's already in a certain culture um you know, just in my area generally i think if if you consider yourself macho uh you you, tor- you start to lean towards like libertarian politics which i think is very appealing for teenagers teenage boys specifically it is the the you know political backbone of all teenage boys is libertarianism uh so that's definitely where i started and uh when you get hooked into like joe rogan uh, and stuff like that, which was definitely me. I was like religiously into Joe Rogan for a couple of years. Um, longer than that, most likely like most, most of college still, 
Um, Look at what happened to that one kid, uh, Sugar Sean O'Malley. He started listening to it, started taking all the supplements, and then got busted by Usada, right? <laughs> it's a different kind of corruption. <laughs> His body was corrupted. My mind was corrupted. Um, but yeah, just uh, after college, maybe it was just because I, I got my master's in counseling, and counseling teaches you to recognize your empathy a little more and work on that and actively be empathetic. And then that's probably what shifted my politics pretty severely. Um, I was like, oh, I'm wrong <laughs> pretty much right away. But yeah, and then uh, I think at the same time, my views on, on MMA started to change um, just because when you're so focused on athletes, um, you start to recognize, you know, when they get screwed over. And typically, if you're a guy that appreciates the good fighters uh, and you don't really care about popularity or anything else, uh, you see them getting screwed off, screwed over more often than other fans might um and yeah you, you see that it's unfair and then i think if you start to apply that view outside of mma outside of the ufc you see that a lot of businesses are run that way um uh basically just not valuing the worker and i mean i think the ufc is a bit of an extreme in terms of how capitalism preys on on the worker uh but it's not unique yeah it's not unique but it's definitely uh obvious it's definitely an obvious example so i think it's hard to miss um and then with the gig economy um i think just being around journalists and being around people who are analytically minded you get a lot of exposure to left-wing politics which is kind of already where i was training so it was easy it's easy to go that way i don't i don't pretend to be super well informed politically obviously i just uh, i like to think that i can tell right from wrong in most case specific scenarios but yeah i think mma uh is polarizing politically because some people get into it and they say, Oh, I just want to see the fights. I don't care about, you know, anything. And I, I'm still, you know, I have my moments where like, I, I love, uh, ACB now ACA, like absolute, uh, championship Akhmat, which is a uh, Ramzan Kadyrov's organization. Like I still watch it and I still love the fighters, even though they're funded by a genocidal warlord. Like that's okay to me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, otherwise I, you know, support unionization. I want the fighters to be okay. Cause I mean, I really do respect and love a lot of fighters in MMA and a lot of athletes in sports. And for the most part, there's no, there's no structure in combat sports for these guys to have real legitimate, you know, careers that where they're getting paid their worth and have actual safety nets, which they absolutely should have. Um, so I think if you just talk to any fighter with a brain for, more than a short conversation you'll get the sense that they know that they're being screwed out of something here but it's just an industry where there's not a lot of options <laughs> so i don't know yeah i think if you're paying attention um you definitely trend one way but you know journalists in general are, are typically already viewing the world through that lens i also think doing analysis doesn't necessarily make you care about things in this way but it can because Ultimately, you're learning how to think in what's called econometrics. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking about things, not just analytically, but how incentives or how behaviors affect other behaviors or chain reactions, or you're seeing things in a logical through line. And so that's all like economic behavior, right? So I think because of that, it informally trains people to think of things in this way. And then when you're a fan of MMA, you think about everything like MMA. So if you're analyzing MMA in this way, I think you start to analyze other things in this way 
like an analyst and then you see, oh, this happens because of that. Uh-huh. You understand why things happen because that's what analysis does. This reaction happened because of that action, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that also transfers over to politics, especially thinking about politics in economic ways. That makes sense to me. <laughs> what happened first then? Was it wrestling first or did you have an interest in MMA already or did they kind of happen in tandem? Uh, well, I would say MMA happened first. Uh, so I, I got into MMA just because I was channel flipping uh, in the summer after like sophomore year of high school. So I was 16. And uh, yeah, I, I was channel flipping and I saw like one of the ultimate fighter finale cards was on Spike. And yeah, I saw like two or three fights and none of them were particularly good fights in hindsight. But I'd never really seen MMA before. I'd seen boxing matches and I always thought that was cool. And I liked uh, Dragon Ball Z and other you know, fighting shows. So I was like, I was always drawn to, you know, combat, I would say just intrinsically. Uh, but yeah, I saw MMA. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I want to do it just like immediately like that. I can't really tell you what it was that that drew me in. But as soon as I saw it, I said, yes, that's for me. And uh, basically after that night, I, I said, OK, I want to train. How do I do this? And I looked into gyms and they were expensive and they were far away. Uh, there's actually, you know, now today near where I grew up, there's a couple really great gyms. But at the time, I didn't have a lot of options that I could tell. And uh, my parents weren't really too keen on it. Uh, but my best friend uh, has been wrestling his entire life. And he's always been trying to talk us into wrestling because he didn't want to be the only one doing it. Uh, but we mostly just made fun of him because, you know, wrestling is a sport that that's belittled in high school for the most part, <laughs> um, mostly because of singlets, which is a whole other uh, debate in, in the wrestling world. But yeah, he uh, he told me like, hey, you know, all these guys are wrestlers, like all the, all the good ones anyway. Uh, so this, this is the way to do it. Like, it's relatively free and, you know, it'll be fun. And he didn't tell me that it was like the hardest sport imaginable and I was going to be miserable. Uh, so he definitely wrote me into it. So yeah, I started wrestling to get good at MMA. Uh, and then it, everything kind of snowballed from there. So I spent one good season on the wrestling team, uh, which there's a lot that happened in that season. And then uh, I went to the first couple practices the next season. And I, I had not had a good time in terms of the coaching experience. And uh, our team was definitely not in the best position uh, to, to be running. And my friend who'd been wrestling since he was like five or six, he quit after that year. So it was a bad time. Um, and, you know, right at that time, one of the teachers at my school started sponsoring an MMA club. Uh, basically, you know, a couple times a week, we'd go down and lift. And then he would teach some technique and we'd roll and spar and stuff like that. And it probably shouldn't have been allowed because we were actually sparring. And like in the cafeteria, hitting each other close to full force. Uh, it was pretty irresponsible, but I had a fun time. And uh, yeah, so for two years after that, I said, I, I don't need to be on the wrestling team anymore because this is what I wanted to do anyway. Did you think that you would become an MMA fighter? I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think I just wanted to like do it in general. I didn't need to be like, a fighter necessarily, but I definitely wanted to train, um, just get my hands on somebody and just, you know, feel it. Um, but yeah, that MMA club was, was fun. And then, uh, Luckily, in college, that we had an MMA club as well. So I trained for free for about six years, which was great. For somebody who didn't wrestle for that long, you seem to have a lot of love and passion for wrestling. Mm-hmm. I kept following the sport for sure. You know, after, after that initial exposure, I was like, okay, I like wrestling. I just, I'm not good at it. Uh, but, <laughs> and I don't like being on this team, but I definitely enjoyed the sport. I always liked watching the matches. And uh, uh, before I got to college, I just kept up with Pennsylvania high school wrestling uh, and just watching states and keeping track of some guys. But then once I got to college, I went to Pitt 
Uh, they have a, a good D1 team. And uh, I, I went to every dual meet, every home meet, and uh, I watched everything I could. And I think I, I watched about as much wrestling as I was watching MMA at the time. So it's it's very similar where it was just my fandom uh, that helped me develop there. It wasn't so much about having a lot of experience doing the sport itself. There's actually a lot of crossover from Dragon Ball Z fans to MMA fans. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I think if that's your crossover, you end up being one of the not so obnoxious MMA fans, mm-hmm. not the uh, just bleed types. Going along with your love of wrestling, who are some of the best wrestlers in MMA? Right now, I would say the guy like with the most complete wrestling skill set would probably be Kamaru Usman uh, in the UFC, at least. This this becomes a much more complicated question when I expand it to all of you know, the whole mixed martial arts world, because like I said, those ACA guys, um, especially their lightweight division, they all have an absurd baseline level of wrestling. Uh, and not all of them use wrestling as their primary like game plan skill set approach. Um, but just to throw out a couple names, um, Ali Bagov, who uh, was the lightweight champ who moved up, uh, insane, insane game from neutral, like a, a absurd takedown artist, and then one of the best top players in MMA history, I would say. Um, then you have a guy like Edward Vartanian, same division, lightweight. Uh, just some of the most creative, interesting uh wrestling entries and, and a great top game as well there uh abdul aziz uh abdul vakabab he's a uh, pretty great as well all-rounder uh uh alexander shabli he's he's more of a striker these are all lightweights by the way these are all lightweights in the same promotion um, <laughs> so a lot of the best wrestlers internationally are in that promotion are are russian <laughs> yes <laughs> are russian and they're in that promotion yeah well shabli left he's a uh, and with pro FC right now, basically there's this weird situation where a lot of these guys are on their way to the UFC, but uh, either to clear up roster space because the UFC has a limited number of roster spots for Russians, I think intelligently on their part because they don't want uh, their demographics to be overwhelmed because if they did bring in all the best fighters, it would be too many Russians. Ah. Um, and it would I think it would upset the fan base because it's a lot of uh, middle America um, xenophobia going on so i think they might be threatened by that and be less interested uh but yeah all those guys uh he he uh officially left the promotion bantamweight champion uh rustam karimov is a great wrestler uh but yeah then back to the ufc i, I think usman is great i think khabib holistically is definitely one of the best wrestlers i think his neutral game has a lot of flaws what do you mean by neutral game uh takedowns yeah takedowns in the open um so yeah, in, in wrestling, in a wrestling match, when you start your feet, it's that's neutral position. So it's top, bottom, neutral are the three positions. Um, yeah, I like Usman, I like Habib. Uh, I would have said Alexander Volkanovsky a bit ago, but I think that he has some some strong limitations there. Uh, someone like Colby Covington, I don't exactly rate because I think it's more about his process than his actual baseline skill of wrestling. What do you mean by process? That he applies... The way he fights lends himself to getting into more wrestling situations. And just because he has a high volume of wrestling situations, he can get himself into. He can do more. He can be more successful overall. But someone like Usman is going to shoot once and score once more often than than Colby would. Uh, But Colby has this pressure striking approach where he can get to his takedown game on the cage more often than someone else might. Um, Similar situation with Khabib, where I think his mat writing, uh, obviously his top game is mat wrestling, is phenomenal. But, you know, it's his his neutral game has its flaws, but he has a process which 
with which you can get to those positions more often. Um, what about from the past? Are there any MMA fighters who were wrestlers who would be able to still implement their game today? That's the thing I don't like about greatest in the past because maybe they weren't that good at wrestling. It was just that everybody was bad at takedown defense. Mm-hmm. Who's somebody from the past you think that could still hang today as far as being able to implement their wrestling game? Um, I think GSP holds up as far as, as wrestling goes. Um, GSP holds up. Uh, Mike Thomas Brown, former uh, WC champ, I think he holds up. Um, and this is all kind of about offensive wrestlers. I, I, it's like a whole other conversation with uh, defensive wrestling, I believe. Um, yeah, those, those are two that really stick out to me. Matt Hughes is someone that I need to dig into a little more because I'm my initial impression is to write him off <laughs> uh, because he didn't have a striking process that would lead to wrestling. But I still want to see how he wrestled and, and think about it. But without becoming a better striker, no, his, his wrestling's not going to be effective. Uh, yeah, historically GSP and Mike Brown are, are two of the ones that really jump out to me. And as you go higher in the divisions, you'll find more wrestlers historically back in the day, like Randy Couture. And, um, but those are, those are some of the guys that jump off the page to me, but honestly, like MMA is still, still in its infancy as far as, uh, the wrestling game there, the I mean, wrestlers have dominated largely, but I would say not many of them have actually had great. MMA wrestling games uh, thus far. I think it's more of a symptom of being wrestlers that makes them that good rather than the wrestling itself. So then who are some fighters who have a great wrestling pedigree, but their wrestling for MMA doesn't live up to their pedigree? Uh, Johnny Hendricks. Johnny Hendricks is one. He was a, uh, a two-time national champion for Oklahoma State, D1, uh, three-time finalist. He actually lost his uh, senior year in the finals to someone he beat five times before Mark Perry. Um, he's he's one of like the great the great all timers in, in folk style in college uh, to go into MMA. Uh, someone like Shane Roller as well, uh, another uh, multiple time All American at the very least from Oklahoma State. Uh, I don't know if you I know I, I'm I'm probably butchering his last name, but Coach Mike uh, Reardon uh, for a bloody elbow, who's kind of his position I sort of filled in. He did a list of like greatest wrestlers of all time to to fight in MMA, and for the most part, not a lot of them did very well <laughs> in wrestling. Um, in terms of just the, how their credentials passed over, um, someone like Brock Lesnar <laughs> is an interesting one. He was a national champion D one, uh, I think two time All American. He's only two years in the in D one. Um, yeah, I mean someone like Ben Askren. Two-time uh, national champion, two-time Hodge Trophy winner, which is like the Heisman for wrestling, and an Olympian. Uh, his wrestling, this is a controversial opinion that I hold, that his wrestling didn't translate very well, but I think it has less to do with uh, his style and more to do with how he tried to translate it. And I think it's a similar issue with someone like Johnny Hendricks, where it's not that there's anything with his wrestling style that isn't allowing him to cross over. I think it's just the way he approached MMA kind of leaving his wrestling behind in a sense. Um, it's not like he never hit a takedown again, but I just don't think he had it as an emphasis on his game. And that's a problem you see with a lot of wrestlers is they, they're too busy learning all the other skills and they don't keep up with the wrestling as much. Um, I think that's something that is a problem, and which really makes me happy when I see wrestlers continuing to wrestle consistently. Um, two of the best at that are, are Kamaru Usman and Michael Chandler. Uh, Chandler was an All-American for the University of Missouri. 
Um, Usman was a, a Division II national champion and a multiple-time All-American Division II. And uh, Kamaru Usman actually beat uh, J.P. O'Connor in freestyle, who was a, a national champion D1. And Usman also made a, made a little run to to qualify for the Olympic trials. He didn't do it, but he uh, he beat some good guys and he had some close matches with uh, Jake Herbert, who uh, won silver that year. Uh, but yeah, Usman and Chandler always post videos on Instagram of them wrestling with each other and like just kind of like playing, play wrestling, going through flow positions and mat wrestling and treating it like wrestling and not like just doing MMA specific situations. Uh, you see that at, at American Kickboxing Academy a lot. They're they're always wrestling because uh, DC runs practice. <laughs> so they're, they're not not going to. Um, what do you think about somebody like Phil Davis? Yeah, national champion, four-time All-American for Penn State. Uh, yeah, yeah, his his didn't translate so much, but I don't think it has a lot to do. That's one of the cases where I don't think it has a lot to do with him not working on his wrestling. I think his wrestling is probably where it's always been. Um, but his style was just so not conducive to uh, the way he wrestles, uh, which, you know, it's tricky. It's super tricky. Not, I would say most fighters, most wrestlers coming into MMA don't, get the kind of coaching where they are structuring and learning striking in a way that's going to best supplement their wrestling. They're just trying to learn how to do everything. They're saying, okay, just teach me how to fight and I'll get in there and I can wrestle if I need to. Uh, They aren't, they aren't thinking Phil Davis isn't thinking like, Oh, I need to be able to pressure to get to these situations that uh, I do best in as a wrestler. So I'm going to become a pressure fighter. I think he just started striking and what felt good to him is what he kept doing, which was like out fighting. Um, and he didn't become a great outfighter, but it doesn't matter if you're that good at the thing that you do. It just has to be the right thing that matches up with your wrestling style. And if that happens nowadays, it usually happens by accident. Someone I didn't mention, uh, who is wrestling, I think is really great. First of all, it's like most of the flyweight division. Uh, but someone like Zach Mikowski, I really appreciate. Uh, he, he was a, a D1 wrestler for Drexel, uh, another Pennsylvania guy, another Philly guy. Uh, but yeah, he went to a, he went to TriStar because he saw how GSP wrestled in MMA and said, oh, that's kind of like how I could wrestle in MMA. So he went to TriStar to learn from GSP to learn how to wrestle like that in MMA. So he went out there with the plan. That's here's how I'm going to set up my shots. And I wrote an article about uh, his fight with Joseph Benavides of how he's uh, how he was setting up his uh, takedown entries because they're beautiful. He didn't even win that fight, but he did a beautiful job. Um, <laughs> so I think that that's probably why. Like I would say 60, 70% of the time, it's because the style doesn't match up. Uh, and then maybe like 30, 40% of the time, it's just because they just aren't working on their wrestling skills anymore. And it's just not, they're not keeping up with it. So when they do feel like they need it, it's just not there. Um, someone like Ed Ruth too. That's that's a good example of someone not considering the style. Um, I don't think his wrestling's regressed necessarily, but he's someone that rushed his career. And for, for context, Ed Ruth is a three-time national champion for Penn State. Uh, there's, there's a good handful of three-timers. Uh, maybe there's uh, four, I believe, four-timers. So that's pretty rare. Uh, and Ed Ruth actually lost his senior year in the regular season and then won the title his senior year. That's how good he was that he could kind of fall off a bit and say, oh, whoops, and then go back and win the title. Uh, so he was pretty transcendent. He also made a world team in freestyle, and he beat uh, you know world medalists like uh, Salas Perez of Cuba. Uh, so he was, he was a transcendent wrestling talent. And then he comes into MMA and doesn't do quite as well as you would expect. And when you look at him fighting, there, there's no process. There's no process at all. He just kind of has a few things he likes to do, uh, has 
a way to fight and he just fights and he tries to to win you know what i mean he doesn't have a, a plan in mind of how he's gonna do how is he gonna get to his takedown entries how's he gonna control this fight how's he gonna set things up how do things build on each other he doesn't really have that he just goes out there and just kind of goes and i think that worked for him a lot in wrestling as well where he wasn't game planning for anybody uh which is interesting because penn state's one of the good game planning schools in wrestling but you you see it all the time with these guys where it seems like a decision in the fight that okay i'm gonna start wrestling now and usually it depends on the baseline skill set of their opponent if they can deal with it or not um but yeah if, it, if it's not working with your style it's, it's usually not going to work once you get to those elite levels. Do you feel the same way about Darian Caldwell, where his wrestling was about improvising and adapting and making it up on the fly, but in MMA, that doesn't work as well? Yeah, and you have to consider that all their knowledge has been warped once they get into MMA. Like When, when you get used to in wrestling, for the most part, is uh, certain tie-ups and what can come off of what tie and what uh, what approach draws out what reaction to get their hand in this position, their feet in this position, or how can I get them level-changing this way? It's all based on a certain distance. It's all based on positions that you can't easily get to in MMA. So uh, especially when you're not a good striker, which he's not, um, it, it's difficult to do that because he was very dynamic and he's extremely athletic. But a lot of what he did came from close quarters. You know, he wasn't like an outside shot artist. I think um, people outside of the wrestling world definitely overestimate how many wrestlers are good at outside shooting. Um, it's not that many. It, it requires a, a certain type of athleticism and a certain game to even get to those positions. You don't see it very often. So I think uh, with Yoel Romero, who I think we get to later, um, people are like, oh, why isn't he just like double leg people off their feet? Like, it's not what he does. It, it's, it's not how he wrestles. Uh, it's not how most people wrestle. That's why someone like Chad Mendez is so special because uh, he has both games going for him. He has a really nice like front headlock snap down game, but he also was the outside double guy. So if you run at him, yeah, he's going to blast you off your feet. And uh, someone like Henry Cejudo is interesting as well, because uh, I think a lot of times what you see from him is baseline skill set coming through, uh, just ending up in wrestling positions. But he was like a slick outside shot guy. And in order for that to, you know, work for you in in mma i think you need to be consistently like drawing out the reactions and setting up those spots to get to the shots or you need to be drawing someone onto you and suhudo does not do well on the back foot and he's tried to be this karate outfighter kind of guy but you see him like on the feet he's most successful when he you know crashes forward um, which is not conducive to his style of wrestling so it's very interesting how like the the dueling priorities <laughs> you know go with, with these wrestlers in mma of uh, or are they prioritizing their striking and their wrestling, or do they work together? And uh, there's just so many factors that people don't consider when they're trying to evaluate these things. Uh, and I, I could go all day about case examples on that. Well, what do you think about GSP? Because before Dominic Cruz and Daniel Cormier got onto the commentating desk, we just had whatever Joe Rogan told you. And Joe Rogan would always say that mm -hmm. GSP was like the best wrestler in MMA because he was so good at takedowns and he could easily make it to the olympic team and so <laughs> forth so do you think gsp's wrestling is overrated yeah pure wrestling i mean not wrestling for mma yeah um if, if that's the standard we're holding it to i would say yeah definitely overrated and i don't think he would like just go into a match uh a wrestling match and beat anyone good um 
I, I probably wouldn't pick him to beat anyone <laughs> at, at a level I'm familiar with. Like if they're if they're successful D1 and they're around his weight class, no, I, I wouldn't pick him to beat them in a wrestling match. There's a video of uh, him in the gym with uh, some football player, some someone big, um, and he has a wrestling match with them, and they they go for like one. It's like a one takedown match. Um, and he has a really hard time taking this guy down, and you know the guy's big, obviously. But I'm I'm watching him try to wrestle this guy, and it's not clean. Like it's not process driven. It's not clean. He he has a good baseline skill set, and he's he's a very attribute based uh, wrestler as well. When you get to the the bones of it, um, where he's very explosive and he has super strong hips, and uh, he's great at clearing distance and and level changing. So that all lends itself to him being a good shot artist and being good defensively. Uh, but yeah, I don't think he's like any sort of savant wrestler. <laughs> I think he's someone that really figured out what I'm talking about, how things go together, how things fit together. Um, for example, he, he's got the springing entry game. Uh, that's perfect. A spring entry game, especially if you're going to level change off of it. So if you can spring in with a jab, a few times to the head and then spring with the jab to the body and come off your jab to the body with an overhand or come back upstairs with something else. You know what I mean? Just something manipulating levels that involves clearing distance quickly like that. That so well masks any takedown entries because the motion is similar. You want it to look like a takedown. You have to think about what are strikes, what are approaches, what are entries that I can do as a striker that look like how I take people down. That way, when I finally do decide to take people down, they can't see it coming because they're trying to think of what I'm doing, what I was doing before. Uh, so GSP was somebody that uh, could set people's stances uh, with his kicking game, and he could you know, confuse them about entries with his uh, with his entry striking game. Someone like that um, that that made him really phenomenal as a wrestler. Plus the 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 pure attributes, like the baseline skill of like how good he got at executing a double leg. You know what I mean? Uh, so it takes a lot of baseline skill. You have to drill wrestling super hard and train wrestling and get good at all these moves. But beyond that, what really makes the difference when you get to a high level is how it's applied. And in a pure wrestling match, GSP isn't going to be able to set things up in that same way. He's going to be operating from a different distance. Um, it's, a, it's a whole it's a whole different game. So do I think if you stick GSP in a wrestling room when he's six and let him train for as long as everyone else does in wrestling, and getting to that level, yeah, so it's sky's the limit athletically. Um, but if you just plop, you know, take him as he is, even in his prime, let's say, and you put him in a wrestling, a D one wrestling room, I think he gets beat up. Um, and that's 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 how it is for most MMA fighters. A note to our loyal listeners: If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Then let's talk about then MMA fighters who may not have a wrestling pedigree, but they have very underrated wrestling. 
like somehow they've developed a good wrestling for MMA game. Juicy A Formiga is someone I really like as as a wrestler in MMA. He is like an extreme of that process driven person. He reminds me of GSP in a way that, that he has this process, uh, the way he fights. And it's, it's very systematic. It's very uh, intellectual. And he isn't the most dynamic. He isn't the most varied. He isn't the most athletic. He's fast. Um, but yeah, he has a lot of shortcomings as a flyweight too. That those are hard things to suffer. Um, not being fantastic with attributes because everyone there is such a fantastic athlete. Uh, but yeah, he's somebody that that does a lot of the things I was talking about with GSP, where he has this jabbing game, where he can draw out reactions off his jab and he can he can show it a couple times and he clears a good amount of distance on it. And let's say he gets you jabbing with him and then you start parrying every time he jabs in. So he knows where your hands are going to be when he jabs in. And he can basically just play this jabbing game, time you and enter on single leg because with the stance matchup, that's the closest available takedown. And if you can just get for at least one second, your hands somewhere else and you thinking about something up high then he can level change for the single leg, uh, his mechanics on, uh, on takedowns could, could use work. Uh, he does this thing with his double leg where if you're in an open stance matchup, like if you're both Southpaw, uh, if you're Southpaw Orthodox um, and, and your feet are touching and your bodies are uh, mirrored uh, to each other, he'll start leading with his rear hand and he can do this thing where he'll weave in uh, off the rear hand and the, the motion of him coming in behind the rear hand looks like his double leg entry. So he'll shoot his double off that. But then once he's in there, he'll like he'll finish with his head on the wrong side. Like it's not it's not pretty, but the process is really nice. And uh, that's like his new takedown game. Before that, even when he first got in the UFC, what he would do is he would just sit back and basically wait on people to have to enter on him. Um, and he would like dip his head or pull back or something where he would like throw his left hand in uh, a hooking motion. It wouldn't be, actually be a left hook and he would level change off it and he would either grab a collar tie or an underhook. Usually an underhook is what he wants. Um, but basically it was just like a counter punching game that was entirely designed for him to get these underhook positions. And usually he'd go double unders and he'd get his body lock and he'd take your back. And uh, I don't know, I just really appreciate someone who that's that intentional with how they set up their striking to be all about their grappling. And that's kind of what it takes for someone like Formiga, who's not going to be posing a huge threat in the feet without that. I, I think that's that's what it takes. Um, somebody else is uh, Jorge Masvidal, and not as much offensively, but I think defensively. He's such a fantastic wrestler, and I think the main thing that uh, makes that possible is his hand fighting, his grip fighting. He's just super uh, persistent and he has a lot of urgency about it. He knows that once someone's on his legs, the first thing he should be doing besides getting himself in a responsible position is uh, is attacking the wrists and uh, working off that. And what's really nice to see is he's incorporated that into his offense um, as like a, as a striker. So he'll be striking people once he gets into close range. He'll start grabbing wrists and manipulating things and doing these short offense maneuvers. Um, and uh, one more person who does some similar things but does have an offensive wrestling game is uh peter yan uh the bantamweight contender he's probably my favorite active fighter right now uh he trains at tiger muay thai uh, under the hickman brothers um, they're both d1 wrestlers in, in the united states and they run that camp um so i think they just taught him baseline skill wrestling and he picked it up so fast and he's figured out how to incorporate it into his boxing game i mean if you watch his fights in acb He's like hitting uh, hip throws and hitting headlocks and, uh, you know, just, you know, showing that he knows how to wrestle baseline. Uh, 
He's also doing things like he has this insane pressure game, so he gets people to the fence pretty often. He'll be on the fence and he'll be firing off some shots and then he'll start playing off the hands and like posting the wrists up high, like pressing your wrists against your face and then dropping to the double off that. Or he'll, uh, something he's been doing recently, which I love, is he, he's got great uh, reactive head movement and proactive head movement. So if you throw straights on him, he'll usually hit an outside slip and then he'll pivot off of that to get an angle on you. Well, he turned that into a uh, basically a duck under. So he'll hit this outside slip and then hit the pivot, the, hit the pivot hard and circle behind you and be in like rear standing. He did that to favor a bunch of times. He's done it a few times. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko actually does that as well. So I got to give her a shout out. But those are people who don't have traditional wrestling backgrounds who uh, do some things that really catch my eye. Uh, and I, I mentioned Volkanovsky before. I think he's gotten to a good place um, as a wrestler as well. But no one thing with him really jumps out at me as much as it is just him having a good baseline level. What about Damian Maya? We got to mention him. Oh, yeah. Damian Maya is someone who kind of has janky mechanics, yeah. but definitely has a, a system. But his system comes off his shots, which is interesting. He doesn't really have a whole method of how he's going to make his shots available because his system's all about once I get to your legs, how do I proceed? Uh, and it's basically with like that deep half game and uh, the, the dog fight coming up to his knees on that underhook and fighting from there. He falls on his back, goes to half guard and comes up with the single leg. That's great. We know that about him. Mm -hmm. I feel like it should be in your back pocket. It doesn't seem like he could ever complete the takedown when he actually goes for it. So what do you think is the problem there? Uh, it's a lot about posture and, and distance because uh, usually because he's like just kind of spamming these takedown attempts and not totally setting up the strikes, they usually come from too far away. Um, so automatically you're already uh, you know extended on the shot, which puts you in a bad position, makes it hard to finish. Um, I mean, other people do that, but they're not the same kind of athlete. Like Habib ends up extended on shots fairly often, and but he's got the uh, the core strength and the grip strength more or less to to build up, um, even if he's not fully based underneath himself. Whereas Damian Maya ends up extended on the shot and says, "Okay, I'm not going to allow you to create any space or or do anything. I'm just going to sit through right away and get working on this half guard position." Whereas uh, other people are usually have a better chance of finishing the shot so they can work through it. Um, and then other times he'll be closer and he'll get in on the shot, but I think it's more about his posture and having his head down and kind of already anticipating <laughs> being flattened out uh, or he's not like looking for this clean full motion. And I think it's also about economy of effort where uh, he's like, all I need to get is a hold of this and I can take a second and then adjust and then start to work through this. Uh, rather than like taking the time to, it's a bit of a sprint finishing a takedown all at once. Um, cause you got to hit your entry and then right away start building up and adjusting and getting to your finish. And, uh, I think just, he's been an old man fighter since before he was an old man. <laughs> uh, so I think it's something that works for him that he didn't feel the need to correct a lot of that, those mechanics. What do you mean by posture? Uh, having these, like his back rounded and his head down and, uh, leading with his head rather than having his uh, hips underneath him when he when he gets in on the shots. Yeah, it's a lot of reaching and a lot of fighters do that. Mm, so it's kind of like a bad deadlift position, right? Yeah, it, lifting form and wrestling form are very similar. You want your head up, you want your hips underneath, you want your back straight. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to be, you know, straight up like a pole. It just means if you're bending forward, you should be bending forward to the back straight. Uh, it, it's, there's a lot of uh, mechanical issues with wrestling in MMA, but I mean... It, a lot of wrestling in MMA is frantic because it comes unexpectedly. <laughs> so I don't expect people to be prepared. 
uh, to wrestle perfectly. And a lot of these guys are people who learned wrestling in the past few years, and it's not like they've been drilling these things their whole life. And that's not to say that lifelong wrestlers have perfect mechanics either. They don't. What about the women's division? Who are some of the best wrestlers that you've seen there? Um, I talked about Valentina Shevchenko. I think she's got a really nice clinch entry game. Um, and she does really, and I think a lot of it comes from her Muay Thai background where she has, uh, her sweep game, uh, but and wrestling's wrestling. So I think a sweep game is wrestling. Uh, she does that, the outside, uh, outside slip duck under, uh, she does like intercepting body lock, uh, entries. She does cool stuff like that. Um, I always enjoyed, uh, Claudia, uh, Gadea. She's, she's a fun one. And when she has the energy. She's got a nice takedown game. She's a, a pressure boxer, so she can pressure box in and, and get shots on the cage. Uh, basically, her her thing is either double legs on the cage, less less often from space, and then she'll build up the body locks, and she does a nice job of uh, basically bumping people forward off the body lock. You know, uh, when two fighters are against the cage and one's in rear standing, and they start to sag off to the front, and they just kind of drop their weight and bring them down to their hands and knees. That's a that's the good like rear standing body lock game that I like to see uh, from fighters because it's a good transition position, especially if you're a grappler who wants to take the back and put hooks in and everything like that. It's a good way to create space. Uh, she hit a uh, basically just that that sag on Joanna a bunch of times when they fought. That was one of her most high percentage takedowns. Uh, was her body lock game? I think you find for the most part that uh, in women's MMA people are more successful as clinch takedown artists than uh than open shot artists and maybe it has something to do with physiology i'm not sure <laughs> but you have somebody like carla esparza where right when her division was starting yeah she was the ultimate fighter winner and the first champion but since then she's had a really hard time getting takedowns and having the same success she had early on and she has as far as the women's division go one of the better wrestling backgrounds or maybe the second best. So what's going on with her? Do you think it's also a mismatch of her MMA style versus her wrestling style? Yeah, I think that's mostly what it is. Um, it, it's just a factor of her not being all that as a striker. And she's gotten way, 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 way better as a striker. I, I wouldn't call her a good striker, but it's nowhere near where it was in the Ultimate Fighter days. And she's an outside shot artist. Uh, I mean, she can work on the cage and she can work in the clinch, but I think she feels most comfortable taking like committed level changes in the space. Um, I remember her hitting, her hitting a bunch in uh, one of her recent fights. I definitely, I'm not as diligent watching women's mixed martial arts, unfortunately, just because there isn't as much to see right now. Um, but yeah, I do remember hitting her a lot of, her hitting a lot of outside shots and you have to play a very specific kind of game uh, for those to work. And I think, her boxing game is just something that's kind of coming together right now. And maybe incidentally, she's finding these positions where she can enter. Uh, but yeah, she seems like somebody that, uh, that has to work through shots more often. Um, she isn't getting to these positions where she can rest. And I don't know. It's just, uh, she has to spend more time on her feet than others might just cause she doesn't have this like defined pressure game where she can just get to the cage and start working. There's always, um, a bit of a, a handicap for pressure uh fighters who become who are wrestlers in mma just because you're almost definitely going to get to the cage positions because ring craft and mma is so poor um fighters are not good at making the retreats anything other than linear so they usually end up on the cage so that's to your benefit but if you're an open shot artist a lot of the time uh you need someone to come on to you and you need to know when they're going to do that so you can hit your reactive shot or uh 
you know, most of the time you don't want your opponent to be moving backwards while you shoot on them. That's just counterintuitive. Um, so if you're somebody that likes to work from open space, 99% of the time, that means you need them to be coming towards you, um, which, you know, requires a bit of craft as a striker. And I think it's just a baseline thing where not everyone knows how to do that. <laughs> so those opportunities just aren't there as often and you just have to wait for them to throw. And I think more often than not, you just see fighters waiting for their opponent to do anything. And they're just timing whatever that is for their takedown entry. And it's like a total roulette about what that strike is going to be and how conducive it is to your shot. Um, and, and when they catch kicks, that's always the best. It's like, oh, I, I got them kicking. Cool. Um, but it doesn't seem like that many fighters do anything on purpose to get their opponent kicking. It's just that they see it and they do it. Um, but I would, you know, I would rate someone's wrestling a lot higher if they had a game where they knew about how their opponent kicks and they could draw it out and then shoot off that. I think a lot of the mismatches as you're talking about happens because of the way MMA gyms are structured. Mm -hmm. Because if you go like Carla Esparza, she goes to a BJJ slash Muay Thai gym, right? And I think that's the combination most MMA gyms are because that's how it, the sport started, the combination of those two arts. So then you have these wrestlers coming in, right? And they're trying to strike and they train with a kickboxer, but they don't want to throw kicks because they don't want to get taken down. So they become a Muay Thai striker who only punches, uh -huh. <laughs> right? Which doesn't seem very conducive to their wrestling style. They'd be much better off mixing their wrestling mm -hmm. with boxing. Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and there's like no consistency with MMA gyms and, and training situations. So it's, it's, it's still pretty Wild West in those terms. Uh, so yeah, I think you're going to find hundreds of reasons why fighters do the things that they do and how they've been trained. Uh which is interesting. I think as you find uh, more fighters who have defined games that they figured out that they crafted, if those guys start becoming coaches, those guys and girls, uh, hopefully we can see the level overall improving because I think that's what's missing from the meta is just intentionality. I don't think a lot of fighters know why they do the things <laughs> that they do or what they or why certain issues arise or what they should fix. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of self-awareness right now. And I don't know if it's like that in like a boxing for example uh but in, in wrestling at the higher levels if you talk to wrestlers they usually know what's happening and, and they game plan but there, i think there's less to think about in those game plans so maybe it's just easier i don't know what aspects of wrestling do you think are underutilized in mma uh probably upper body positions but that's almost unfair because i think that's also underutilized in wrestling um <laughs> But I think uh, as far as things that are easier to do in MMA than they are in wrestling, uh, hitting trips and throws upper body is probably going to be easier in MMA. For example, you see a lot of body lock takedowns in mixed martial arts. You almost never see a body lock in wrestling because uh, there's no surface. Uh, having, having that wall there, having the cage there is huge because if I get double underhooks and I body lock you, you're going to get your hips back. Uh, once the cage is there, that's not really as much of an option. Uh, I watched uh, Benson Henderson versus Donald Cerrone, uh, their, the rematch the other day, the one that ends in the first round uh, for Benson Henderson. And uh, Henderson gets a body lock against the cage, and Donald Cerrone has nowhere to go with his hips, and he doesn't really know how to defend takedowns otherwise, so he turns his back. He gives up rear standing because he, he has no idea what else to do, and he said, okay, if I turn my back, I can make a little more space and get my base wider. Um, but like just a lot of fighters 
don't know how to work through those positions. And it was, it's so easy to get to uh, compared to wrestling. And you can really take your time um, angling off a body lock and setting up uh, a takedown, especially because you can like lean them against the cage and like uh, lift up the body lock to get their uh, stance a little more narrow and then, you know, compromise it that way. Um, but I think in, even in open space, throws and trips are, are underutilized just because uh john jones is someone that did it really well uh for a while in his career and then stopped doing it for a couple reasons but he would do something where he'd tie up with someone let's say they're in uh they're in collar ties and his opponent's like pressuring in or he's pressuring in they're just kind of hanging out in that position a little bit uh you know you, most of the time someone's gonna throw a knee so let's say i'm just squared up with you we're squared in our collar ties and i throw my my rear knee and it hits you clean, and you're going to say, okay, I don't want that anymore. So you're going to put your hips in, which is what they teach you in in like a Muay Thai gym or a kickboxing gym, or that's what I've been taught when I've gone to gyms is to avoid get, getting need. You don't want to give up space. You want to get your hips tight. Uh, when you get your hips tight, it usually means that you are narrowing your stance, getting your feet a little closer together and getting them a little more square. You are just ripe for being thrown at that point because your base is compromised and someone can move you around pretty easily. Um, so against like Matt Hamill, for example, he, uh, he hits that knee and Hamill goes side on in his stance and he just feeds that, that leg, that lead leg. And, uh, and Jones hits the, uh, outside trip of Sotogari off the, uh, the collar tie. Um, Hector Lombard did the same types of things to Jake Shields. He kept, uh, beating him up in the clinch and, uh, the clinch strikes were causing Shields to disrupt his stance and be more vulnerable, vulnerable to being thrown. And I think that's just an interplay. It's really hard to get past when you're clinched with somebody because you don't want to get hit, but you also want to be in a good position not to get taken down. So I think we haven't really seen that fully explored yet. We haven't seen a lot of fighters besides a couple of examples I mentioned that consistently are putting on a process like that where they're clinch striking and opening up these takedown opportunities. You had already touched upon this, but let's get into it more. A lot of people think the secret to Habib's MMA success is based off of takedowns. Mm -hmm. But do you think his takedowns are that much better than everybody else's in his division? Or do you think it's more about what he does once the fight hits the ground? There's like so many layers to why his game works. He, he's more of a GSP in terms of why he's successful. It's the all the parts of his game coming together rather than any one thing being uh, phenomenal. Well, what they both have in common is they're both great mat wrestlers and both both great grapplers um so their takedowns mean more uh you know just because if he takes you down that's probably the round um but yeah just to speak to Khabib's takedown game a little bit and I, I touched upon this in a decent deal of depth I did a wrestling for MMA article on him and then I also did a a breakdown of his fight with Poirier uh he basically has two modes two modes of, of takedowns uh starting from from neutral so starting from neutral, he'll either shoot what's basically like a low single, um, sweep single hybrid, just because the mechanics are a little off for both. So it's hard to say which exactly it is. Um, he'll do that and he'll stand with the leg and, and build his base back up and lift the leg up and trip out the base leg in some way. Uh, and he'll do that on the cage as well. Uh, but on the cage, more often, if he his entry, it's him pressuring in some sense and usually that means a blitz like a straight on blitz and then once you hit the cage he's level changing on the double and he'll either get the double or he'll come back up to the body lock or he'll switch off to the single leg and then lift the leg and trip from there um so it's definitely a system he has from neutral but uh 
there's there's a couple things that make it not all it's cracked out to be. One, the single leg itself is pretty janky, um, and there isn't. I, I think he uh, his whole thing is just timing, timing broken rhythm more or less. He's not looking for any uh, specific sort of setup. He's not looking for you to throw anything that he wants. It's more like this is a time where they aren't expecting it, so I'm going to do it now. Uh, and against uh, Conor McGregor, it was mostly uh, whenever they broke from a certain situation. So uh, in, in the very beginning of the fight, uh, Conor McGregor pressures right away, backs him up to the cage, and Khabib's pretty easy to back up to the cage. Uh, he has no problem giving up space. But he isn't bad at circling off and, and getting away and uh, defending those positions. So I think that's why he doesn't more often, but Connor backs them up. He throws a bit on the cage. They circle off. And once they reset, again, that moment where they reset, he said, okay, now he's going to start a new exchange. I'm going to shoot now. So I think it's more of his understanding of timing in terms of like initiative and, you know, like a mental setup rather than anything physiologically making the shot more effective uh, on the single. And then the single itself, it, it's all about seizing that, that opportunity. So he shoots explosively. He tries to get to that leg as fast as he can. And he drops, you know, he drops low. It's a low single. Um, but he, what ap- often happens is that he's diving on it and he ends up on both of his knees. And it just takes time. It takes time to get back to his base, basically standing back up on his feet um, to finish that. And that's an issue. So even someone like Al Quinta, who I don't rate very well as an MMA wrestler, I think baseline he's fine, but he's not exceptional. Um, he was... a uh, basically turning, posting on the head, and kicking his leg out, limp-legging out. He did that a few times uh, against that single leg. And if you have someone like Jose Aldo, the best wrestler in MMA history defensively, uh, he'd he'd have a field day with that shot because Khabib is giving his opponents time to hit that limp leg. And uh, basically, Ale Quinta is the only one I've even seen like try to do that, (laughs) to to limp-leg out of it. Um, so just, uh, mechanically, he's really open to that defense and you see, you know, when he's attempting that shot more often, like he did in the Ali Quinta fight, he was getting tired and he stopped doing it because it takes a lot of effort to build up from your knees on the leg, especially if you have someone's weight bearing on you. The nice thing about an outside single like that, like a sweep single is, uh, you can lift the leg in isolation. You're not usually not underneath someone you're off to the side. Um, but just the time that it takes to get off his knees. Sometimes, you know, someone does bear their weight down like Connor did. Um, and you have to build yourself up with someone on top of you. And uh, his form on that, he usually has a rounded back and his head's down, which makes it even harder. Uh, and it's more strain. He's super strong, so he can do it. But it's, it's hard. It's tough. So I think his uh, his neutral game is, has its limits, which uh, automatically dings him a few points in my book just because it's it's kind of a uh, a gamble that he's going to go all in on these takedown attempts and hopefully he can finish enough of them where he can get his top control time. And it's always worked out. Um, that doesn't mean there's a problem with it. Uh, and then in terms of his cage wrestling game, his pressure is fairly psychological at this point. There's nothing specifically he's doing with his striking to, to blitz that isn't counterable. That isn't something you can deal with. I just, uh, he has this reputation as a wrestler where I think, a few times his opponents are expecting him to have this reactive takedown. From what I've seen in the UFC, he has hit one reactive takedown on Pat Healy. Pat Healy kind of marched in on him and uh, Khabib changed levels and doubled him. 
that's probably the only time he's ever done that. And he's tried to do it other times. Uh, he tried to do it to Connor and just not a good shot from him. And I think it's because of the way he strikes defensively. He usually leans back at the waist and uh, uh, backpedals. It's really hard to switch gears and, and get back in your stance and take a shot from there. Uh, plus, you know, it's a huge risk because if you're leaning back like that, they're usually reaching to get you. And if you you know plant to reset and hit that level change, they're leaving yourself open. So he's not really someone that I expect to hit any reactive shots, but people let him pressure. They don't push back into him because they're scared of that reaction, I guess, because it's so dire. It's such a big deal if he takes you down that people get a little uh, paranoid, I guess, <laughs> about their ring craft and about the way they fight. Um, but yeah, his his success is almost entirely about his skill as a mat wrestler and a grappler. And I think those things go hand in hand. Um, I wouldn't really separate them into separate categories. Uh, but obviously he has his wrist rides and he has the leg mount and he has a crucifix, crucifix position. He likes uh, body lock control. Uh, there's a lot of stuff he does um, that makes him great on top. And uh, for a good breakdown on that, Ryan Wagner, again, uh, he did a, uh, he's done a couple article articles on Khabib, uh, but I think his second one, like say as the Khabib primer, I think it's called, he did that for MMA sucker. That was really great. Uh, he really breaks down all those individual components of his ground game. And I'm sure I could break them down if I really tried, but I haven't really tried. So I can't speak specifically to all the great things that Khabib does as a grappler, but that's that's where his uh his success comes from. It's just he has the takedown game, a neutral game that is effective, but it, it's a lot more flawed than his uh his mat wrestling. Why do you think more fighters aren't doing what Habib is doing on the ground? Like Matt rides breaking your man down and so forth. Do you think part of it is that a lot of MMA fighters buy into the idea that once it hits the ground, you go into jiu-jitsu mode? So instead of leg rise or wrist rise, you have to pass. Or instead of breaking your man down, you take the back. And it seems like Habib doesn't do that unless he knows for sure they're dead tired. Then he'll start taking their back or doing things like that. But otherwise, he's doing more mat wrestling. Yeah, it's tough to say, especially because... uh you know, even if they are working with a lot of wrestlers, not every wrestler is the same in terms of their their mat riding. Um, like me, even as a wrestler, I'd I'd prefer to put uh, we call it putting boots in. That's like putting hooks in on the back. I like to ride with boots. Um, some people like that. Some people like to put one boot in. Uh, some people like to ride the hip, which is kind of what Khabib does. Like ride the pit, the ride the hip, go cross wrist, like put in a half or something like that to put pressure on the neck so they can't base back up. There's so many different rides in wrestling, um, which you find mostly in folk style. Uh, so, I mean, if you're like working out in a college wrestling room and you're an MMA fighter or you're just working out with college wrestlers in general, you're probably just trying to work on your neutral game because that seems more uh, more urgent. Seems like a more pressing skill to fill in. Uh, so I think it's just like a matter of having time in the day to work on specific things. I think if uh, if more fighters worked with wrestlers for the purpose of improving their mat wrestling and their riding game, then yeah, I think they would start to pick those things up just, you know, naturally. But it, as far as I know, it's not really something people teach in, you know, jujitsu schools and gyms. It, it's probably not a huge grappling thing just because, uh, I mean, if you were in a point scoring competition in grappling and you got to, uh, to turtle or to referee's position, as we call it in wrestling, and you didn't put the hooks in, you wouldn't get points, right? So it's not really incentivized in those in those circles. And I think for the most part in an MMA gym, if they have like sports specific coaches, if 
for grappling, they have a jujitsu coach. Um, and maybe the wrestling coach has a couple days where they teach a wrist ride, but it's probably not enough of an emphasis where anyone's getting really good at it. And uh, I just credit uh, I credit Abdul Manap uh, Nurmagomedov, his dad, uh, for being so systems oriented. And I know it's him because uh, Ali Bagov, who I referenced before, the ACA lightweight champ who moved up, um, his ground game was so pass heavy. I mean, as soon as he got people down, he was elevating and uh, uh, hipping over and, and doing all these things. He was passing right away, and it was all about passing. And he was a uh, he was giving up some some escapes just because he was giving so much space. Uh, so people could scramble out and get up and it didn't happen that often but it was like a flaw that he was not having as much time on the ground as he wanted for that reason at some point he he started training with uh with Khabib and Abdul Manap and uh he started to look like Khabib like he wasn't uh putting hooks in as often he was uh using the leg mount in the cage and he was doing all those things uh so I think it's uh a very just like a, a one gym specific philosophical thing that they decided they were going to have this writing system. Um, whereas, yeah, I think it's just a, otherwise you're not seeing it very often because people aren't training that specific skill because they're too busy. They're too busy trying to learn everything else. I can only think of two MMA schools that have a thesis for the whole school, meaning mm-hmm. they do everything like every other school, but every fighter and every practice there's a general like college thesis, right? It's the idea that goes through all the other paragraphs. So it's the idea that goes through all the other practices. One of them is the one you just mentioned where it's about mat wrestling, right? Habib's dad's school. Mm-hmm. And the other one that I'm thinking about is city boxing where it's so much about feints. Right. No matter what you're doing, you always have to faint. You always have to have a system of feints. That's interesting. I'd, I'd like to talk to more coaches and see, you know, because I, I, from what I hear, most coaches are just like, you bring bring what you have, and I'll try to improve you without changing too much. Um, but they don't try to like convert their fighters into a certain uh, a certain mold. But yeah, you definitely see it every once in a while. I would say it parallels the history of how jujitsu is taught, where you kind of gave everybody free reign. You showed people some moves. Like you have a room of ten black belts; they each have a different style. But now they don't leave it to chance anymore. If they come from a certain school, everybody almost grapples the same way i think danaher is a great example of that yeah that's the one (laughs) right so i think it's the same kind of thing as the way coaching is changing it's like we tried the whole leave it up to you thing now you're going to do it our way our system right Mm -hmm. but something you were mentioning throughout this conversation is process so who in your opinion is the most modern mma fighter the one who has like this process where they're the latest version of mma where there's a reason why they do everything and it all comes together and it blends together and it makes sense. That's interesting. So I would, I have two answers. Uh, so in the way that I was talking about, like a very intentional, like I'm going to do this and this, and this is how these things work together. Um, probably uh, Alexander Volkanovsky is the one that comes to mind where it's like a very, uh, I wouldn't say rigid, but like a very set game plan of like, here's what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I'm going to stick to this. I'm going to be disciplined. So I would say Volkanovsky is one. Uh, but then the one that immediately springs to mind in terms of like the modern, like complete MMA fighter is uh, Leon Edwards. Mm. I really like Leon Edwards. Yeah. And it's interesting because he, when you look at him, he's not process driven. Like he doesn't really push any specific kind of fight, but he has an answer for pretty much everything. He's kind of like Aldo. Um, 
not not that their skills are that similar, but just that their philosophy is pretty similar. Where he's like, I'm ready for everything that you have. And I have my things that I do that keep me in my comfort zone. But if you try to push, I have an answer for that. Um, so I feel like, yeah, Leon Edwards is a really good example of like just the skill level being at the point where he can do whatever he wants for the most part. And then uh, Volkanovsky is probably the guy that has like the most clear process. And I think I've spoken to you about this before, but I think there should be two different pound for pound lists. Mm -hmm. One is for accomplishments. And I think that's the one we default to, right? But I think the other list should be more based on pure skills. And I know that gets subjective. So this is my own list of pure skills. If I were to create this, then I would put Henry Cejudo as number one. Mm -hmm. Putting aside the terrible things he says outside of the ring, <laughs> just on his skills, he fascinates me. And you mentioned him earlier as how he is almost a paradox. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on the quadruple champ of cringe flyweight bantamweight and Olympic <laughs> Henry Cejudo? It's a uh, it's love hate. It's love hate with me and Cejudo. Like, I, uh, and it's not just love hate with his like personality. It's also love hate with him as a fighter because I tend to... Uh, as someone who considers themselves like a little more um, finesse based than than physical, because uh, I'm not entirely physical, uh, someone like him where he's just like uber, uber physical, like the athlete in the division, like the athlete in the UFC right now, uh, like insanely durable, like inst ridiculous chin, uh, can like tank everything and like powerful enough where it matters. Uh, like he... In terms of like pound for pound physicality, I put him at the top of that too. So in terms of like skills, I try not to evaluate in that way because it's not realistic to just say like, oh, who has the best in a vacuum? If I watch silhouettes fighting, like who has the best, uh, who has the best skill? Um, but in, in terms of combination of, I guess you'll call it athleticism, but like physical factors and uh, fighting ability, I, I would say it's fair to put him at the top there. I think the guys that uh, that I was talking about before from ACA, those lightweights, uh, they, they definitely have an argument as well. But yeah, Cejudo uh, is someone interesting just because I, when you look at him, when you watch his fights, like, yeah, he's getting hit a ton and there's a lot that can look like it's going wrong for him. But then in terms of when he turns it on and when he figures out what his fight is, uh, how hard he is to beat, how hard he is to stop, it's unreal. Um not that I think Marlon Moraes is like incredible or anything like that, but he's so dangerous and super tough. And by the time that Cejudo got into his fight, he had already taken, you know, over a round of punishment. <laughs> and he, then he, and then he turned it on. Then he found out what his fight was because his corner told him in between rounds, yeah. <laughs> like, this is what you need to do. And then he did it. Um, how many fighters can you say where their corner could tell them, here's the exact fight you need to pursue to win? How many, first of all, would believe them? and do it and go do it and then otherwise how many would actually make it work so i mean he, he's really special he's a really special athlete and um if you have a um a flow wrestling or a flow combat subscription anybody i really recommend uh there's a 20 30 minute documentary about henry Suhudo and terry brands uh when he was when terry brands was one of the coaches at the uh, olympic training center uh but basically it's just the story of how Suhudo was always like talent wise somebody that could win an Olympic title uh, but just all, all the things that needed to happen in order for him to get to that point um, it's just so interesting how like he's kind of a head case <laughs> and he, uh, he's definitely someone that you need to like harness 
he's like a, a power that you need to like control and, and he needs mentors and he needs coaches that can point him in the right direction. He's like a weapon. Uh, he's a soldier, but it's, it's so interesting that way. So he, he's a really special fighter. Um, I, I still hate him as a fighter a little bit just because he gets away with things that he wouldn't if he wasn't uber durable. But <laughs> I think there's a, there's an awareness that he is who he is and he can do the things that he can do. Um, I hope he loses to, to Aldo, even though they shouldn't have made that fight. <laughs> but because I, I, you know, I have a very sentimental attachment towards Aldo. But <laughs> then we live in a just world if that happened, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hold I hold Zuhudo in a very high esteem as a fighter. And uh, Danny Martin, shout out uh, for the fight site, has written uh, a couple a couple things about Zuhudo. But his most recent really touched upon uh, you know, his identity as a fighter. So I really recommend checking that one out. So how much crossover is there from international wrestling to MMA? Well, here's the scary thing. The Russians that I mentioned, none of them have any sort of competitive record in wrestling that I can find. So those guys are all practically nobodies in terms of, of, of Russian uh, wrestling. However, most of them do end up competing in, in combat sambo. And uh, Ali Bagov in, in particular uh, has a world title uh, in nogi grappling, but it's like uh, United World Wrestling's or like Fila's grappling tournament. So it's not like really worlds, but it is a world title. But those guys are basically nobody. Um, I think I, I, I saw Yusuf Rysov, who's another up-and-comer at 155. I saw him training in, in like a Team Russia singlet with his name on it. So I'm like, okay, maybe he was on in some sort of age group competition. But for the most part, none of these guys have any sort of competitive record. I think there's like one in PFL um his name escapes me but he has a record he he's meddled at some good competitions um uh bilial uh, mahov the, the heavyweight uh he's meddled in both greco and freestyle um he was supposed to do mma he, it never happened then he came back to wrestling uh, but as, as far as russia goes almost never it's almost never happened without one of those guys has crossed over because they're compensated so well they're taken care of so well ah. uh by the you know the russian wrestling federation and by their sponsors but uh, as far as like internationally, it's it's happening. It's usually guys who uh, were not that successful uh, in you know countries that don't really have as much of a tradition, uh, and and that's you know it varies per style because like freestyle and Greco have different demographics. Um, so someone like uh, Ilir Latifi represented Sweden a couple times at the youth level. In Greco, like a cadet in juniors, which is uh, under 21 about. Uh, so, yeah, he, I mean, there's there's guys like that that have some semblance of a record. Like maybe they made a team uh, when they were little in, in some style. Or maybe there's in a country where it's not that competitive to make the team. Like uh, Barcelos, uh, Hione Barcelos. Uh, he, he went to Pan Ams a few times. He went to another few South American competitions. He never did well at anything, but he's considered one of the highest level wrestlers in MMA just because he was at those at that level in freestyle competing at that level. Um, I just wrote about a uh, an age group world champion who's transitioning, uh, Rinya Nakamura, um, Japanese, obviously. Uh, he's 25 and he uh, he won U23 Worlds in 2017. Um, and he's always been like the number three or four guy on the roster at 65 kilograms. Like he's like a huge get for for MMA. I mean, you really don't see these guys that often. So when you have like a Yoel Romero or a Henry Cejudo or uh, like back in the day, Mark Schultz, like somebody like that, um, it's it almost never happens. And when it does happen, it's usually Greco, which is such a mixed bag. 
Greco is really interesting because uh, they have these funky rules that don't really encourage you to attack, like to actually try to throw somebody. Um, plus, when you're both so good, it's really, really hard to get to dominant positions, uh, upper body to, to get to a throw. So usually you, you end up like doing some hand fighting until someone gets hit with passivity. And then when you get hit with passivity twice, you get put down uh, and parterre and they can try to gut wrench you and try to score points that way. So the Greco skill set is all over the place. <laughs> and uh, whether or not it's going to translate to MMA is even less likely than in freestyle because it's it's a total mixed bag in terms of whether or not these guys have good leg attacks because they aren't practicing them for Greco, obviously. Um, but someone like most of the good Greco guys that have come to MMA have been Americans. So they all wrestled in college. So they all have strong folk style backgrounds first. So that, that doesn't really count. Um, <laughs> so like, I think... Uh, there's been some uh, high-level Greco guys and like Pride and uh, maybe uh, some other organizations I can't even think of right now. Oh yeah, Damian Janikowski and KSW. He's he medaled the Olympics in Greco, and uh, Marco Madsen from Denmark just got into the UFC and he uh, has medaled at like six, seven world championships and in, in, uh, silver at the Olympics. So you have these guys, but as far as uh, elite freestyle talent and MMA and like elite Greco talent. Almost none. Almost none. The guys you see are pretty much just scratching the surface of the talent level. And I swear, if we ever see like the elite Russians start to come over, like everyone is doomed. <laughs> everyone is so, so doomed. Like it's, it's hard to imagine how far above the rest of the world they are at wrestling and like what kind of athletes they are. Like it'll blow your mind. Um, especially considering how far above like the American wrestlers are like when you compare them to MMA fighters, like athletically and skill wise, um, you're going to start to see more American wrestlers coming over soon. Um, it's, it's strange because uh, wrestling is in a good, pretty good place right now in terms of money. Uh, you can, you can make money as a wrestler full-time uh, freestyle or Greco training out of a regional training center, which is usually attached to a school. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, the popularity of MMA has reached a point where, someone that you know watched mma growing up in high school uh that was a wrestler uh, has gone through the entire process now and, and they've had the plan to go into mma uh so those guys are coming and you're always going to have your guys trickling out of college uh, but in terms of like the best of the best in wrestling in the world um i think most fighters should pray that they don't come because it's uh it would be it would be shocking like someone like sajilayev for example who's the pound for pound best wrestler on the planet I don't think it's even a question whether or not he would win multiple titles in MMA <laughs> if he was actually trying. Uh -huh. um, the way he both athletically and technically outclasses the people at his weight, plus his weight distribution. Uh, he's at 97 kilograms, which is about 213. Uh, so he could go 205. He could go 185 probably because he's not really cutting weight. Um, he could go heavyweight. So he could win three titles, I think. <laughs> so... You mentioned Yo Romero a couple of times. So, how good mm -hmm. was Yo Romero in his prime in international wrestling? And also, you said his style was different than what you see in MMA. So, what was his style like? Yeah, I think the one thing from his style that you still see in MMA is his, his upper body chops. So he has a, a great uh, throw game, pretty much. Uh, he's really great with the Polish throw, uh, which is like an outside trip back arch off over unders he's he's really excellent with that he had that when he was international too um you know foot sweeps stuff like that uh little things of that nature but uh in terms of how good he was in freestyle he was amazing and he was amazing for you know 
a full a full generation, I would say. Uh, so he competed at nine world level competitions, which includes the Olympics. Um, so he in, at world level competitions, so like the world championships, he took fifth, third, first, third, second, sixth, second. So he only didn't medal twice at worlds, and he did win a world championship in 1999. The guy he beat for his world championship was the 1996 Olympic champion, and then won worlds two years later. So he's beaten the best uh, at his weight. And then at the Olympics, he was a uh, second and fourth. So he lost in the, uh, in the medal round in the 2004 Olympics. But that even those numbers on their own, which are extremely impressive. I mean, almost nobody has stats like that, uh, especially for Cuba. Um, but even with those, those numbers, it's even greater when you consider that he was, I think the public is 99% sure that he threw a bunch of matches and the matches he threw were at the world and Olympic level. So I think if you just add one one placement point to all, the, all of those, it's more accurate to where he was at. Um, the whole throwing matches thing is, is really sad because it's mostly Cuba doing it because they're definitely the poorest of the uh, Soviet-affiliated nations uh, competing in, in wrestling. It, it happens in boxing as well. But, um, I mean, the Russian Fe- Wrestling Federation definitely has money um, to offer and... Uh, a lot of the affiliated nations like uh, former Soviet bloc countries like Azerbaijan, Georgia, um, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, they have more money than you think. And uh, a lot of it is coming into sports. Um, I think Kazakhstan in particular is dumping a lot of money into their sports programs. Um, so basically, it's it's exactly like you'd imagine it. They're just literally offering money to these guys like behind closed doors and like backdoor meetings or in the alley, in the hallway. Okay, you lose to whoever, or then you you make this much money, which is more money than they're going to make to win. So a lot of the time they do it, um, and they are not great actors. So you can usually tell. <laughs> it usually looks weird when they when they lose on purpose. Um, very recently in 2019 Worlds, uh, a Cuban uh, Alejandro Valdez Topier, um, who I love, he beat the American in round one, and then he beat the Iranian in round two. And then he lost to the Russian representing Bahrain, which is like the ultimate <laughs> mashup there of like a country with lots of oil money um, sponsoring a Russian wrestler. Uh, and yeah, he he lost to, to this guy, Haji Muhammad Ali. And I think he he'd been hitting these uh, these uh, lateral drops and these throws from double overhooks the entire time against everybody. And then he just kept throwing himself to his back against this guy. Like he just was going for the worst throw attempts they've ever seen. And uh, the theme with, with these Cubans taking these sketchy losses is they're always just going to their back. Like it's the signature of, of all of them. Um, Yoel Romero's matches that I thought he threw, he, uh, he always looked like he just wasn't trying. Like he was just letting things happen to him. And then like out of nowhere, he would just go and score again to keep it close. But then he would just go back to doing nothing. And it's, just, it's so obvious. <laughs> it's not it's not clever um but no one's checking it's not like anyone's gonna be able to prove it um but yet yeah, the reasons why they do it is always different so sometimes it's the head-to-head like oh you're wrestling our guy lose sometimes it's like oh the team score is close like uh the u.s and russia have been very close at a world championships once uh, for winning the team title and uh if the american wins then you know they win so they'll like pay them to beat the American or something like that. Um, but in this case, the wrestling uses the repishage 
system in freestyle and Greco. So basically, if you lose in a tournament, the person that beat you has to make the finals. If they don't make the finals, you don't get pulled back in. So basically, everyone finalist A beat wrestle in a mini bracket for bronze, and then everyone wrestler B finalist B beat wrestle in a mini bracket for bronze. So you have two bronze medalists uh, for that reason. So Tobier beats Zane Rutherford from the United States first round, then wins two matches, and then if he beats Haji Muhammad Ali, he's in the semifinals uh, against Russia. So, or he's in the quarterfinals against Russia. There was a lot of rounds in this tournament. Uh, so basically just to ensure that Tobier doesn't go any further, because it's harder to pay them to lose to a guy, to your guy, rather than uh, making it more indirect. Uh, but yeah, he he loses uh, to Haji Muhammad Ali, and Zane Rutherford gets bumped out. Um, and the team races actually had been becoming more competitive in 2017. The United States actually did win the world championships uh, over Russia, which was cool. Uh, so all these little these little games definitely help. And I can't prove that Tobier threw the match or that Yoel Romero threw any matches, but there's stories. Uh, there is one story in particular. King Mo actually, I believe, told this one, and I can't find online where, where this was posted um, or where he talked about it, but I definitely remember it, and people have confirmed to me that they remember too that it was King Mo that said it. Um, but that before some tournament, uh, I, I believe it was Russia, Yoel was paid to to lose his next match and they either changed the amount they were giving him or he didn't like the the number and, and wanted it changed and uh he like said I'm, okay I'm not gonna do it anymore and they stabbed him <laughs> they stabbed him in the back um and then he was fine I guess and then he went out and he wrestled the next day with this huge bandage on his back and he, he beat the guy and he won um <laughs> So I don't. I, I wish I had more details on that story, but that's something I've heard. Going back to King Mo, did King Mo know that because he was part of the same international wrestling scene? Yeah, King Mo made made a world team or two uh, in freestyle. So yeah, he was around in the same time that the UL was. So commentators always talk about, especially Joe Rogan, it's like, why doesn't he just go for the takedown? Just go shoot, right? But does he have a style where he could just shoot like that from open space? Yeah, he was an, he was an offensive wrestler, but his offense came. From close quarters, uh, he was a big snap down system guy. So basically, he would get his hands on people. He'd be wearing on them, wearing on them, snapping them, snapping them. And uh, if he could snap them all the way down, he would usually just you know pass by the arms and, and hit his go behinds. And plus, he's the kind of athlete where that that game can work. It can work really well. Um, but I think it the the two the double attack basically is. You're snapping down, you're snapping down, and if it works, great, you hit your go behind. If it doesn't work, that means that they're resisting and that they're standing taller in their stance, or you're snapping them down a little bit, and then they're reactively jerking back up straight off the snap down. So basically, he would either do that, or he would hang low on the head and uh, reach across in an ankle pick. So he was an ankle pick artist. So he was an ankle hit, ankle pick, go behind, double attack artist. And... uh that is a style that requires you to be up close and working snaps and it takes time. It's a process. Um, so he wasn't just like, oh, I'm just going to explode randomly, which is what people think he is in MMA, which he is not that either in MMA. But he was he's very intellectual uh, with this wrestling style, very cerebral. It was, it was a process that all came off of that front headlock off that snap position. Whereas MMA, like there is so much that would go into Getting that kind of uh, getting that kind of uh, time to put in to first of all strike your way into range to get onto someone's neck 
and then to like be snapping them like it's just not can you know it doesn't work uh plus an ankle pick is such a risky attack to take an mma because i mean you're dropping fully levels and it, it comes from a bit of a space and you have to come off the head for it and people are almost never in a position for that to work um I've seen a few. I've seen a few in MMA. Also, like cross, cross counter angle picks. Maybe those are a little more likely. But um, yeah, for Yoel, it's interesting because uh, his style, his striking style changes all the time. He applies different approaches as a striker. I think he's falling into some more consistency lately. Like basically against uh, Robert Whitaker and and Luke Rockhold, the first, the second time he fought Whitaker and the first time he fought Rockhold. That's when you start seeing that uh, the high forearms, like cross arm guard, uh, like the uh, the lock, the Archie Moore style. Uh, that actually, that in conjunction with I think just overall uh, baseline defensive skill increasing did uh, lend itself to one takedown entry. Basically, if he can just show up like that, it becomes more and more pressure on his opponent to land to create openings because he is shutting them out this way. And then he's landing counters and he's low kicking and he's jabbing the body and stuff like that. Uh, so against Whitaker, you saw it that Whitaker was bursting in on these, these entries and uh, eventually he was timing them and, and trying to hit reactive shots off that. So that's, that's not really conducive to his original wrestling style, but it's something that he adapted for MMA. And then uh, he, he always has it in his back pocket. That he can like blitz forward and get you on the cage and double you off there. But He's not a good cage wrestler. Uh, offensively, he can do that. Defensively, he can do nothing. Um, I don't. I don't believe he's really trained cage wrestling much because it doesn't look like he knows what he's doing when he gets there. That's why Brunson took him down. That's why Jacare took him down. Um, he, he just looked clueless from that space, uh, which is a theme. A theme for wrestlers in MMA. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because in his first few UFC fights, you saw him kind of playing around with a few ideas. Uh, with being an outside shot artist, basically uh, his motion was very level changey, like he jabbing the thigh or jabbing the body or uh, throwing overhands, which are all level changing strikes. Uh, and then kind of mixing that in with the idea of a takedown attempt against Honey Marcus. Uh, you saw that the most often because uh, he actually set up the overhand knockout with that level changing dynamic. Uh, so he's played around with a few different ideas, but he's a fighter that really hasn't settled on any one system that really works for him he kind of he flows depending on the opponent and his game plans are usually pretty good um i think uh costa was the only time that he really didn't show any specific approach that made sense um otherwise he's always had some sort of thought out process that connects sometimes to how he's going to wrestle but not not as often so it's like he doesn't really have any style that he likes that totally connects to his original wrestling style he has a few different you know weapons he can pull out that uh that work with one or two of his striking approaches um and in terms of like him being a good upper body artist good at throws uh i think that's just kind of him being a a good clinch grappler in mma that he can uh he can intercept entries as, as a striker and end up in those clinch positions and he bursts in so often that usually uh people end up clinching with him and that leads to those positions. But I think as people became more wary of his uh, ability to uh, attack in close distance, those opportunities uh, were starting to come less and less. So he's an interesting one just because I think he did kind of come up with a solution for making his striking style work with a style of wrestling. But the, the things that made him successful as a wrestler, besides his athletic ability, 
are pretty much gone. You you almost never see those in MMA other than when he throws somebody. What do you think about somebody like Tony Ferguson and his wrestling? Uh, it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see uh, one of his wrestling matches like from college. Uh, I think that would be intriguing. I watched a, I watched an Aljamain Sterling match. He has a few on YouTube of his matches from college. Um, and I, I imagine it's similar to what Tony Ferguson did. Uh, basically, post Ben Askren, so post like 2006, seven, like that, that range, um, funk and leg passing became a lot more common in the wrestling world. And uh, he was in the end sub- competing in like club championships in 2006, 2007. So he was coming up right around the the same time as Ben Askren um, in the, the leg passing funk era. So I would wager that his style really wasn't that funky originally. Like maybe he he preferred a Granby and like was a, a you know funky single leg guy and and liked you know more eccentric techniques. There's a weird culture in United States wrestling where uh, things that are are funkier, things that are more unorthodox. Uh, are are like looked down upon. Uh, it's like, oh, that's a junior high move. That's, uh-huh. that's what people say. Uh, you'll you'll hear that all the time. Like, oh, you'll never hit that in college, or you'll never hit that in high school. Um, which is so funny because uh, the the best wrestlers in the world just use whatever works for them. And uh, the Russians, I think, are much more open minded about technique. Uh, that's why uh, Sajulaya pinned Kyle Snyder with uh, the back hooks, which is like considered a. Uh, a junior high move and then he pinned Snyder with it <laughs> and people like saw it. It's like a slap in the face. Like, Oh my God, that was, that was so disrespectful. It's like, <laughs> no, he's just, it's something he game planned for. Like he, he added it to his arsenal. Um, I feel like Tony Ferguson was one of those guys that was probably open to, uh, to different techniques. And I think he probably sees wrestling and MMA as something different than how I see it. Like, I don't think he ever sees himself as someone that needs to get a takedown. Um, and pr- pretty much as soon as he got in the Ultimate Fighter, he was already that guy where he says, I have my boxing game and I'm going to push it. And then when I get into wrestling situations, I'm good because I, I have my my baseline skill and I can scramble through these positions and I can funk and I can reverse and I can I can wrestle. I can flat out wrestle. So if I get into these situations, I'm fine, which is very similar to Gaethje. Uh, I, I would hold them in the same regard as far as MMA wrestlers. Uh, obviously, different credentials, different levels. Yeah. But philosophically, I think they approach it the same way. Instead of the limp leg, they both do that forward roll out of single legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a bad, a bad grand B roll. Um, but yeah, I, I would th- think Ferguson's about the same place, which means that he, what's different, I think, is that he clearly neglected his straight wrestling training. Um, because I think he's so confident with his grappling and his scrambling that he said, it doesn't matter if I get taken down. Um, and most of the time he doesn't even try to defend. He's like, if you shoot on me, this is an opportunity for me to hit a switch and try to you know, reverse you, take you down. Uh, it's an opportunity for me to snatch up a submission and, and go for that. And it doesn't matter if I'm going to my back. Um, so I can't really rate him as a wrestler in MMA because I don't <laughs> think he is a wrestler in MMA. Like I don't think he, he has wrestling skills and he has wrestling things that he uses, but he doesn't have a wrestling game. Um, so if I tried to like look through his fights, I could say, okay, in these positions, he tends to do these things. He's not making those things happen. They're happening to him and he's responding. Um, but I think it all comes off of that. He's a pressure fighter. 
So yeah, I think he's encouraging wrestling by being a pressure pressure fighter, but I don't think that's his uh I think it's more of like a fallback. It's more of a uh like a Leon Edwards idea where he's like, Oh yeah, I have responses to your game, but his responses are a lot uh, more reckless than others. <laughs> And we may never see the Habib versus Tony fight. It just seems cursed. I'm okay with it. <laughs> Did you have somebody that you favored in that fight? Yeah, I favored a Habib pretty heavily just because, uh, I mean, there, there are like some small things. And I consulted my my analyst friends about this because, you know, with grappling takes, I'm not always as confident to, to say these things. But like, for example, like... Uh, you know, there's, I don't see any reason why Khabib wouldn't take him down. Like, he'll probably take him down because, I mean, Ferguson's not, you know, trying that hard not to be taken down. So it would probably happen where he'd end up on his back. But everyone's like, oh, I think that his uh, his active game off his back and, like, the his elbows and everything like that would, uh, you know, force Khabib to do more and get him tired. And I think getting him tired is the plan. Um, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a thing. He has a limited gas tank. I think he's got a great motor. He can push a great pace. But he gets tired. It's very similar to Colby Covington, uh, what Khabib does, where he kind of banks on you getting tired first. Um, and he's in enough control where it's it's almost always going to be that way. But yeah, so I think, you know, he'd take him down. And uh, I think Ferguson would, would try some things. And people might might point to like 10th Planet systems as something that would, uh, you know, give Khabib trouble. But uh you know, just based on my consultation, I was like, oh, would rubber guard pre- prevent Khabib from stacking? Like, would that would that be an issue? And then uh, most people said, no, no, it wouldn't. And I, I'd be interested as to as to why that is. But if you think about it, Ferguson's guard is kind of neutered because Khabib is so consistently stacking uh, once he gets those those open guard play positions. Uh, so it's not like Ferguson would have the range to be elbowing and attacking submissions, but I think he'd be more likely trying to, you know, scramble up, create space, and then, you know, he's probably giving up or standing, he's probably giving up his back, and then I think that whole that whole grindy cage process would start maybe just at a slight delay, like slightly later than it would against other fighters that aren't trying these things, but I, I just don't see him having a lot of success if he's getting taken down. And then on the feet, uh, he looked, he's been looking a little stiff. Um, he's always had some defensive issues uh, just in terms of responsibility, like the way he uh, jabs into the pocket with his head up, um, how vulnerable he is in exchanges. And I don't think Khabib's the striker to really take advantage of those, but it's not like, it's not like he's going to have a huge advantage on the feet. Um, what I do see for him is like, if he had a pressure game, like he had against a, uh, a few a few different fighters um against like uh dos anjos for example he his uh, jab pressuring was really great um his linear kicking to the body is a great tool so i think if he could uh pressure and and kick the body and uh you know pressure straight and make it that kind of fight and, and stay measured i think that would be great for him just because uh khabib isn't you know really that great uh shooting off the back foot and i don't think he would do it that often and if ferguson did want to stay on the feet that would be the best way for him to do it. Um, but you just can't trust him. You can't trust him to fight any sort of disciplined game where he's not going to put himself in these bad positions. And he is human uh, despite claims. So I think, you know, if he is getting beaten up pretty badly, it, it would wear on him. It would wear on him a bit. And uh, it's always possible that, you know, maybe he just doesn't go away. And uh, 
he doesn't get submitted and it's like the third round and Khabib is tired and Ferguson's totally fine, but that, that, that's a big ask of him. So I just don't see it as being very likely that he, that he pulls that off. Having read your articles now, I can see how you write them the way you do. So for folks on the interwebs, then where can they find you? I think the best place to find me is probably on Twitter um, at Edward Gallo MMA on Twitter. Um, and from there, you can you know, find the fight site and all of our, our articles and our writers. Um, and then uh, if you really want to talk to me like a lot, I think Twitter is <laughs> one good place. But also uh, we have a, a discord server for the fight site um, that is it's one of our Patreon tier uh, benefits. Basically, if you pay five dollars, you get to this discord server and we do like live podcasts all the all the time in the voice channel and we uh today and yesterday and i think all week they've been doing um like uh they've been setting up playlists and watching them together like watching fight playlists and uh doing like commentary parties uh, with the patrons so that's that's a ton of fun so you know that's another way to reach me but twitter's fine too cool well thank you ed oh uh, thank you this was lots of fun and i i talked for 2 hours <laughs> <laughs> now that's the show If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.